We're here. I'm Willie Grills with Adam Kuntz. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. How is the weather in Denver? The weather in Denver is very Denver today. Very bright, almost no humidity, and a little too hot if you stand out in the sun too long. Well, you know, I mean... <laughs> you start you start baking in the low humidity rather than sweating to death. So, so they tell me. Everybody always tries to pull the old, it's a dry heat. But we're dealing with 100% humidity here, so I feel like some <laughs> sort of bog monster most of the time. <laughs> Just sweltering, but I insist on sitting out next to the next to the egg and the griddle, just living that life, you know. As, it is a as certain kind does. of life a man has to live. So you know, I feel I must live a certain way. Right. If we, you know, I had to preserve grilling, otherwise, you know, what's this country going to come to? Right. What else is Western civilization but grilling on boutique grills? So there you go. A man has to. A man has to. You know. <laughs> It's only it's only me and the last generation of pastors who will get a pension who understand this. <laughs> and you may or may not belong to that last generation, your age being wildly uncertain. So. <laughs> my, my documents being very inconsistent. <laughs> right. Yes. Hard to find. So today we're going to talk about borders. So tell us what uh, tell us what uh, we're going to be getting into here. Yeah, it's a general phenomenon, obviously, anywhere that you have different people groups and you could go to Acts 18 and and see borders referenced as as between people groups. But the specific border we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks is the one usually identified as the Missouri-Kansas border, but really we're going to be heavily weighted to the Missouri side of that for reasons that I hope will become clear over the next couple of weeks. And we're doing that basically because we're saying that all of us now live on something that used to be like a border for reasons that we'll talk about toward the end of this hour, where you have lots of different people groups right next to each other. And Missouri is a great test case in that because there are there is so much going on there between about 1830 and 1870 or 1880. We, we're probably going to end around the death of Jesse James. <laughs> Just maybe in mourning, you know, uh, <laughs> and maybe not, but but about a 50-year time span in which that border land, Missouri, Kansas, eastern Kansas, is the scene of incredible violence. And we want to know mm-hmm. why that is and, and how that was and and what happened. Right. You know, borders are one of these things that it's not just a Fox News talking point. They're going to be there whether we want them to be or not. And while we've been taught to think of, especially as Americans, borders being just north and south, that's certainly not part of our shared history. And I I really believe in the near future, if not already, we have some de facto much smaller borders. Right. Right. Yeah. And and I think the idea that there is the border, you know, like either the northern border or the southern border is assumes that the nation state, and we've talked about this many times before, that the nation state is what you would biblically call a nation, and it's not. Mm -hmm. And therefore, talking about the border, like the southern border, particularly is what Fox News wants to talk about, has a certain value. And it certainly it certainly has been very productive of memes in the past several years, whether, you know, Border Patrol agents on horseback or, or Greg Abbott is, is erecting, you know, sort of torture devices on the southern border or whatever it is that you saw on the Internet. But what we're looking at is really when various people groups with wildly different views of life and understandings of what should be come near each other because in earlier times of course there's less of this 
because people and people groups are less mobile than they are today, where within 10 years, you know, you could have a completely different people group from the other side of the world somewhere near you, like right next to you, neighborhood next to you, a couple streets over, whatever. So when we look in the past, there's going to be fewer of these instances, but the ones that are there are that much more instructive for us because it happens so much more often for us. Well, so, so let's dig in let's talk about some specific borders, help give the, so that the people know what we're talking about here. Yeah. If you, uh, if you take a look at, uh, sort of one of the more neglected Mark Twain books, which is Puddinhead Wilson. I think mm-hmm. it's one of the funnier ones. I think it's I think it's very interesting, Life on the Mississippi, also unjustly neglected. But in Puddinhead Wilson, Twain is making fun frequently of people's pride in their ancestry, and particularly how people in the state of Missouri where he grew up, and this is his ancestry too, are proud of belonging to a group that still exists and you still have to be invited to called the first families of Virginia. So it's kind of like the Mayflower society, but whereas the, the Yankees with the Mayflower society are very open and lots of documentation and plenty of records and you can apply for it. First families of Virginia, you can't do any of that and they don't care. (laughs) So, but what it, what it shows you is that Missouri is a place both in Eastern Missouri where Twain grows up and in Western Missouri, the area really around what's now Kansas city. Jackson County, Missouri, as well as the counties around it, that's originally settled from the American South. Mm -hmm. So when we want to understand who these people are to start with, why Missouri is a slave state, for example, but doesn't secede ultimately, um, you have to understand who got there first. And in the case of Missouri, you got to go all the way back to, well, who are the people who settled the American South in colonial times? We talked about that a little bit before on the show, but the specific ones we want to pay attention to are what are going to be called the borderers. And these people are, depending on national borders fluctuating over time in the Middle Ages, either English or Scottish, but they're really kind of all the same people. And their role in the settlement of the American South, especially whatever is the backcountry at any given time. So at one point, that's like the Shenandoah Valley, and then it's Kentucky, and then it's Tennessee, and then it's Missouri, but they're always there, is going to be huge. And their history is not only of living on a national border, which has all of its own problems throughout all the strife between England and Scotland forever and ever, right? But also that they are people accustomed to these things being settled violently. And that that's going to be crucial for understanding who they are because the way that they're going to react to things and their sense of themselves as a group really depends on a much deeper history than, than even what preceded Missouri. And and it's, it's what preceded Virginia or what preceded North Carolina or South Carolina. And that is their history as a people going back a la David Hackett Fisher, hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. And you know, people understand the the nation, the notion rather, of war and using violence to settle borders, and it's become rather frowned upon today. But at the end of the day, when it comes to conquest, there really is no other way to settle these things. And because it is so close in our national memory, some of the stuff we're going to be talking about, it's ironically more foreign to us. <laughs> yeah, so, and I, yeah, and even when I use the term violence, I mean it. it I'm I'm using it to cover a wide range of phenomena that are not that are sometimes going to be called wars and sometimes won't. Yeah, skirmishes or I mean it's right. even it's even stuff that comes along just individual 
or a couple of individual families fighting, but they still end up being territorial disputes. Right. And we can't understand that. Now, maybe me growing up allegedly in Hatfield McCoy country, allegedly. You know, right. we're, we're more, uh, we're more attuned to this, you know, and you know, your area of Pennsylvania, Amish aside, <laughs> you know, the rest <laughs> of them are prone to skirmishing at times. They, yeah, they are. You can look up the, the Raymond clan and find news articles about that concerning West Virginia and Pennsylvania. But I, I think that part of this is is also understanding that without this people group, it's not like there is no violence. And that's going to be key when we talk about the Mormons or we talk about the Jayhawkers or we talk about the people who hunted down the Jameses, mm-hmm. is that you're it's it's not like violence is ever out of the picture. The question is really how it's going to be employed. Right. And and this particular people group will generally assume personal responsibility for violence. Whereas mm-hmm. other groups will very often appeal to other authorities to enact violence, right? So mm-hmm. bring in the federal troops or bring in the state guard or whoever it may be. And and that that's something that you have to see, like even with the Amish or the Quakers, they need somebody to be violent sometimes right. <laughs> because because somebody is going to be violent towards them. Yeah, so, you always you need a strong man, no matter which side of the border you find yourself on. Right. Right. Exactly. And the thing about the the borderers, or they're sometimes called as a group, the border reavers. There's a Faulkner novel called The Reavers, kind of about this group as they existed in northern Mississippi, is that they have been accustomed partly because of distance. So it's almost like they lived on a frontier before they even came to America. Partly because of distance, they have been accustomed to settling things themselves. Well, and hey, that's going to be most of America for most of her history up until fairly recently. Right. You know, we're we're about to go into the Wild West here on the show, and that's naturally what's going to happen. Yeah, right. And I, I think that a lot of people think that the Wild West just sort of pops up maybe after the Civil War for no particular reason. But <laughs> right. especially if you look at the history of the American South, especially, you'll see cattle drives and <laughs> personal violence. And, you know, you got to figure out what the law is going to be based on who draws faster much earlier than maybe you suspect all the way back into colonial times. Well, yeah. And, you know, one of the things I find fascinating is, you know, we talk about official law and then, you know, of course, frontier justice or whatever, but just how the legal system comes up where no matter where you go, you eventually have a sheriff, but he can't be everywhere at once. So the office of magistrate is established, which in most states that have them is tied something very closely to like whatever is a day's horse ride from the sheriff's office. <laughs> and as you go further and further west, uh, the land becomes more and more expansive and that model becomes harder and harder to sustain or enforce. Right. Because nothing's a day's ride from anything on any device by the time you get on any form of conveyance out there. Right. Exactly. And I think that that is a piece of of history that we tend to not it's not just that we don't know it it's also that the people who lived under those circumstances which may or may or may not as we'll talk about be our own now or in the near future that when they live under those circumstances their reactions to things are not therefore some kind of irrational 
you know, just, they, they just, they just love violence, you know, they, for its own <laughs> sake, they just absolutely, they can't get enough. Right. It's, it's not a bloodlust thing. And I think that that's, that's something where the late lamented Cormac McCarthy for a variety of reasons was essentially wrong about America is that violence is always part of particularly personal violence living on a frontier. So if you have a frontier, you have violence that you yourself have to engage in. See, this is why I'm not actually a McCarthy yep. uh, supporter. Um, right, right. It, other, I mean, revisionism aside, it's just splatterpunk horror with a Western veneer. Yeah, and um, we don't need that kind. You know, uh, it's just it's just gore and kind of gross. Uh, apologies to all the pretty horses, but there's some of that in there. There, there is. Yeah, and I mean, the what he calls the border trilogy, which all the pretty horses leads off, is his best writing. Partly because it's it's not so much him making up a myth about the American frontier like he does with the judge and Blood exactly, Meridian. yeah, and and that's the perfect example of just of just this wild western veneer uh, over over top of horror. Yep, and it, you know Blood Meridian. It's so strange because it's it was a book that f- was obviously legendary but flew under the radar. You know, everybody with a YouTube channel is doing six hour critiques of it. For no reason, out of the it's blue, Oliver Anthony and Cormac McCarthy <laughs> yeah. content for my, days. Yeah, my unfilmable novel. Okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, if you want Western horror, just go read Joe Lansdale. There you go, my, my boy out of Nacogdoches. It's much more fun, at least I think so. But maybe less, you know, elevated for some of our listeners out there. Yeah, Cormac McCarthy is 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 splatterpunk for the thinking class. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well. Or for the Barnes and Noble class, depending. <laughs> so, yeah. Apologies. Continue. Yeah. No worries. Uh, so we're we're thinking about this people group that come that have hundreds of years behind them, and I think that that's important. Is that you really have to think about America at any time as an instance of European civilization. The fact that it has been transposed or transplanted somewhere new is going to create different forms of life. But it's not like the peoples who settle America are therefore totally cut off from who they've been for. Yeah, 500 years. absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, this is kind of magic dirt in reverse. Well, not in reverse. It's the same idea. You know, just touching the American soil doesn't change them. It's like it's like wearing a cowboy hat and going to West Texas doesn't make you a cowboy. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You Californians know, hardest hit. So. Right. Um, I mean, okay, Fred, like Fredericksburg, <laughs> right? We'll keep using Texas. Yeah. Still very German. Does right. it magically become Yosemite Sam town or something like that? Right. Right. Was well, still heavily unionist during the Civil War. Yeah. Imagine that. We'll, we'll get into that. You we know? will. Yeah. We Half will. the audience alienated. <laughs> Just... Well, the, the, I, I, the audience is always interested in Germans. So there will be at least one episode in this series about the Germans in Missouri. The term scallywag is thrown around a lot these days. <laughs> and you can decide if it's just or unjust. But the, <laughs> the, the idea that that somehow peoples leave their own history simply is not borne out by history. Absolutely. And so that that usually when we talk about borders today, that's a that's a you move to the United States and being in the United States means you know, signing up for the U.S. Constitution or something so that the nation is really thought of basically like church, where in church, you can indeed, no matter who you are, repent and be baptized. 
and and profess Christianity, right? The nation doesn't work like that. So a nation composed of people from the Scots Anglo border, see what I reversed there. Um, <laughs> uh, th- that's going to be a different nation than people composed of East Anglians and and Lancastrians, which is your major source of people in what becomes New England. So because they have a very different history, right? So when we're talking about why are we talking about borders? One reason to pick the Missouri-Kansas border is precisely because of its insane artificiality, right? Right. It's 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 the result of a land survey. It's <laughs> it's not even a river, right? Um, right? Hardly at all. So, what's nice about that is that it shows you that it's not that borders have some kind of metaphysical existence apart from the people who both establish and enforce them. But right. they do matter when those people want to establish and to enforce those things, as they will in the case, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, of particularly a debate about whether Kansas is going to be a free state or a slave state. Yeah, um, you know, the Kansas border, probably most convoluted, maybe next to the Texas panhandle, though, and how Oklahoma <laughs> even gets, you know, to be there. And so, <laughs> right. but it's all tied up to this. It's the same period of history, same shenanigans, same right. same kind of nonsense here. You know, why subjects like this are controversial? I mean, it's an easy answer because we've been indoctrinated to believe, you know, just kind of a neutral idea of Americanism and of people as a whole, that who you are is defined is is defined simply by a set of propositions. Right. Rather than blood and history and culture. Yeah. And I mean, ironically, the more that that happens, the more... I think unjustly tribal churches become. So at the same time that America is becoming propositional, churches are de-emphasizing propositional teaching. Right. They- well, yeah, yeah, because because you know, they're they have to muddy the waters to make everybody happy. Right. They have to turn the church into the wrong kind of melting pot. Right. Yeah, and I mean, propositional teaching could be accepted by anyone of any 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 nation in a biblical sense it's it's for all the nations it that's not to say you know we all have to be in the same denomination necessarily controlled from rome or constantinople or wherever you like but it you will notice that it's almost an it, it's almost a complete inverse relationship is that the church will emphasize contextualization the more the nation right. or the state emphasizes pro- proposition whereas the nation is very much contextualized by nature, and the church is very much propositional by nature. Yeah. But they'll still, hey, they'll still confess the Apostles' Creed and say peace, peace, when there is no peace, right? Right. <laughs> the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. <laughs> but I digress. All I right. Mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if contextualization meant sacred harp, then, you know. Yeah, but I go, you know, I go a little that, soft on the question. So yeah, but that's that's yeah. proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. Where should we head to now in the discussion? Yeah, I I would say just just the idea of borders don't borders don't have to be contentious. You know, the border the border between North Dakota and Canada is not contentious. Shout out to Zelwyn Heidi. You know, right. we, we love you wherever you are. Um, in, <laughs> well, in yeah, imagine time. anybody in North Dakota being contentious. Anybody right. with a large percentage of Scandinavian blood in them. It, 
they are a peaceable people, agreeable, right. you know. So it's it's not that borders have to be contentious, but I think something we're going to see over and over again is that when when borders are contested between peoples that have vast differences, whether they're theological or historical or legal or whatever they might be, right? They're necessarily going to be almost incessantly contentious, right? Peace will be the exception. Yeah. And that's obviously a failure of a state if it cannot ensure peace as a normal condition, right? Think about the old-timey offensive breach of the peace, which mm-hmm. which should mean something like you're shouting outside after, you know, 5 p.m., right? Yeah. In my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Theocracy um, now. Yeah. <laughs> that means, you know, but what that means is peace is normal. In, a, in an ordered state, in a state that's doing its job. So if you have a situation where it seems like contention is, is incessant or nearly incessant, then you have a situation where the state is is at or is close to failure. Yeah, which is spooky if you live in any, in any metro area of any state in the union right now. Right. Right, yeah. Because when when I think about breach of the peace, I think it would also include the things that my my children are exposed to as we drive around even right which would mean that the peace is breached every day right well and you're in denver i'm you know five minutes outside of the heart of little rock (laughs) and so you know 10 minutes you know in traffic i know the back way's in now although we have moved into the forest it's still it's creeping out here yeah and right the heart heart of little rock just right over the hill really and yeah um you see it every day because disorder doesn't like to stay put. No, no, it's it, it's an infection. Right. It's a virus. When when people are orderly, they keep to themselves. You know, they they mind their own business. Things like this. Disorder doesn't do that, right? right. Whether it whether it's people or whether you want to speak supernaturally, disorder doesn't mind its own business. Right. So it always it always spreads unless checked. Yeah. Hence, good fences make good neighbors. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But we're not up to, you know, uh, George Wallace yet, but we'll get there. <laughs> so, okay. All right. Well, should we talk a little bit about, should we get into Missouri then? Yeah, Missouri is fascinating. It, it remains fascinating for all kinds of reasons. We should which, say we're talking about the state of Missouri, not, not shorthand the, for not, the beloved Synod. Yeah. Synod is how I pronounce that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we're talking about Missouri because the notion of a border state and and Willie, you're from you're from another border state, but your border state wasn't as contested. So, no, no, it was uh, it was certainly beat up a lot during the Civil War. <laughs> yes, yes. All, like Missouri, overwhelmingly southern, but a bit different. Right, Missouri's um, yeah, because Kentucky ends up becoming. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Kentucky is three states, right? Eastern that wanted to be left alone, Appalachoids, Central, which is where the seat of government was, both for the Confederacy and the Union, and then Western Kentucky, where David Appled lives, wherever that is. And Missouri, much more the same from top to bottom as far as these things are concerned. And much more consistent anyway. Yes. And Missouri very consistently, you know, although it, it has what you call great value. Or what I call Epcot Appalachia in the Ozarks in the in the southern part of the state. I've called it Great Value Appalachia on a weekly basis. So. <laughs> it it is nonetheless originally settled almost entirely from the American South. 
And this is important to remember because today we probably think, or people from the state of Missouri probably think of themselves as Midwesterners, but right. that that not only the term, but then certainly the conception and the cultural conception, which we're going to contend in a later episode is really built off German culture, doesn't exist in the 19th century. And certainly in the time period that we're talking about, right, all the way up until the the death of Jesse James. So it thinks of itself as the West. But like we mentioned earlier, the West is heavily, probably vastly disproportionately constituted by Southerners. And that might come as a surprise to people, and it might come as a surprise to modern-day Westerners of states now still indubitably in the West. But the way that that society is set up, the standards of justice, the way that things are supposed to work is really determined from people who have moved from Tennessee and Kentucky. Right. You know, at the time, the North, uh, you know, Northern immigration is going to coincide with industrialization of the West more than anything. Right. And the urbanization of the West, for lack of a better term. Right. As the cities begin to grow, the economies begin to grow. So the Yankees come in. Right. Yeah. You're going to get in Northern Missouri. So let's just kind of break the state down a little bit this way. You're going to get in Northern Missouri, which does geographically obviously resemble Iowa more than it does the Ozarks. Right. You're going to, you're going to originally get what you always get in, in what we could call in our own terms, the Midwestern frontier. You're going to get actual Yankees. Like they're, they're from New York state or they're straight from New England, but they're all descended from colonial New Englanders. Those numbers are not really that big in the case of Missouri, not even in St. Louis, which is actually founded by Frenchmen much less in what becomes Kansas City. Instead, Missouri is going to be largely populated, even in the more northerly parts, largely by Southerners, also in St. Louis, which down through his childhood in the early 20th century, T.S. Eliot, who was born and raised there, and of New England stock, will refer to as a Southern city. And he, he went to Harvard and had to get rid of his Southern accent. Right. So that's, It's so yeah. hard for the modern American to understand this. I mean, you know, the, the French thing is always weird to me. And I hate to bring up Little Rock again, but they, they share that same problem. Right. You, you don't think about the French, you know, founding what become major southern cities that become centers for progressivism in the 20th century. And, I mean, you think of St. Louis now, and what does the average person think of? Um, if it's not crime or the Purple Palace, it's going to be the arch, baseball, and, an, and extreme diversity. And but but that in my experience talking to, you know, we have several people who've moved down from that area or whatever, you know, it was it was still seen very differently than than say, what started to change in the '60s and even the '70s. Only recently has really the the image change happened. Right, and I that's that's a function of a lot of things, but I think what it's most a function of is the absolutely drastic both demographic and political and religious yeah, change in America. Right? Exactly. I mean, this is just many such cases here where right. this happens and, and cities are virtually changed. And through a combination of administration and immigration, this is what you end up with. Right. So, you know, no, no Bosnians in St. Louis in the time period we're talking about. Right. Now they're, now America's crawling with them. Don't know what that's, <laughs> I know what's going on with that, but right. I mean, one way to, to tell what the oldest part of your own area's history is, is to look at 
the names in the oldest part of town and mm -hmm. the oldest names in your cemetery. And in the case of St. Louis, those are going to be French names. So everything down near, you know, Soulard, Lecleed Landing, these are all, these are all French names. And those are families that come ultimately either up from New Orleans or down from Canada to settle what was called by the French, the Illinois country. Well, and, and, you know, maybe one lingering French influence in those cities to this day is that in say Missouri and Arkansas, both that's where, that's the only place you find Catholics virtually the only place yep. you find yep. it in many numbers. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so that's, that's going to be a, a small stratum, although it's part of the, it's part of the ruling class of St. Louis, certainly into the end of the 19th century. And it's the reason that St. Louis has what used to be called the veiled prophet ball and parade, a lot like a New Orleans or a Mobile, Alabama, other, you know, French derived American cities. On top of that, though, is so much Southern overlay. And especially as you move west along the Missouri River, that's going to be actually called Little Dixie. Yeah. Um, and it will have a it will have not only a a white population, but also a black population brought there as slaves, never in the same numbers, let's say like a, a Mississippi or an Alabama. So you're not it's not exactly a deep south. It's still kind of an upper south configuration, but they're going to be they're going to be farming cotton. They're going to be farming hemp, especially. And that's how it gets settled. Largely, the Ozarks are pretty sparsely settled as they still are, relatively speaking, today. And northern Missouri has a lot less going on. Um, and it's it is actually some of it's not even going to be organized into counties in the time period we'll talk about next week with the Mormons. So you have you want to think of Missouri almost the way that today you you might think of a, a Tennessee um, sure. or yeah, or, absolutely. Yeah. Right. You know, as so as we come up into the 1850s, we're going to get into the border skirmishes proper. The demographics that are going to determine Missouri's quote unquote neutrality during the Civil War are already in place. So you have a significant pro Southern population. Right. But during the Civil War, they're not going to join the Confederacy. And so to get us up to speed on that, we have to talk about Jayhawkers and other things like that, and other influences upon the state. So let's uh, let's let's get up to the 1850s and see what's going on. Okay, yeah. So Missouri might be uh, a name you remember from your U.S. history class if you remember the Missouri Compromise from 1820, which was a compromise about how to bring Missouri into the Union involving equally proportioning slave states and free states along geographic lines. That's going to break down by the time the things to the west of Missouri, but particularly what's called the Kansas Territory, are going to be brought into the Union. And part of the reason that that's breaking down is that population growth in the North is enormous. I mean, even um, native-born populations, not, not just immigration, which is, which is going to be the other big factor in Missouri. And as those peoples move west, first into, you know, New York State and then Ohio and what we now think of as the Midwest, but was called the Northwest at the time, they are they are thinking of themselves increasingly, at, at least a certain proportion of them, as self-consciously representing a different way of life, which they which they do, than Southerners. So 
things that were more abstract for a colonial American, like here's how we do things in South Carolina. Okay, well, here's how we do things in Connecticut, but we don't have a lot to do with each other. And when we do, it's usually mutually beneficial in the way that New York City benefits from the enormous growth in the cotton industry in the 19th century. When we do have something to do with each other, it's got, it's probably mutually beneficial, like the Continental Congress or something. We don't have to live together with our completely different systems of life. The people called the Jayhawkers, and that's kind of an obscure term, but it's going to be used eventually yeah. for particularly northern. You, or, yeah. Go ahead. Do you subscribe to the idea that it came from John Jay? I, I don't. <laughs> that's that's kind of the uh, the uh, I don't know schoolhouse rock version of the term, right? Yeah, I, I no, I, I like I like to leave certain things just as weird and unexplained as they seem to be. Um, Life would be better if we did that. You know? Yeah, right, right. So you know, my views on cryptids and and the term Jayhawker are similar that way. The, the irony of modern scholars using Jayhawkers, who basically uh, you know prescribe to every one of their principles, but they're using them as a negative example of Christian nationalism now, is kind of hilarious to me. <laughs> you know, it's like. Yeah, I, we we I've mentioned this before on the show, but the the use of John Brown, who is one of the chief Jayhawkers and is of Connecticut stock, largely raised in northeastern Ohio, which is a which is really a colony of Connecticut in origin, the Western Reserve, is uh, it's very telling because using John Brown as an exemplar also shows you that violence is not out of the question for anybody. Also not for modern leftists who are running either under that name or under another right. name, John Brown gun, gun clubs. Right. Well, so before we um, because well, it's kind of hard to talk about the Kansas stuff without getting into um the story of John Brown, which is an interesting ending, but the, the, many listeners will know, they'll find out. But before we get into discussion of say Beecher's Bibles and things like that. Can we talk a little bit about the religious influence on the Jayhawkers? Can we talk about Lyman Beecher, Henry Ward Beecher, you know, throw yeah. any Beecher in there that you want to. Yeah, the Beechers as as also in Harriet Beecher style, same family. The Beechers are a New England stock family who are instrumental in the spread of what is often a, a sort of amalgamated Congregationalist Presbyterian because the the churches, the those main right. churches are together. Yeah, I mean, Lyman officially Presbyterian. Henry is Congregationalist. Right. Virtually no difference no in difference. theology at the time. Right. And and they are they're not exactly what you would call liberal Protestants because the the concept doesn't exactly exist yet. Right. That's that's the closest thing we can use to describe them in our terms. Right. It's, but, it's almost like how do I describe an alien civilization right. in, in modern terms? Right, because and, because it's going to be things like abolitionism, which is going to put them on the radical side of things. Teetotalism, which is based and won't put them on the radical side of things, but they are early adopters of this they are. approach. Yeah, right. And so there's going to be a heavy focus on what we would probably think of as 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 highly political preaching. Yeah, L- less of a focus on what we would think of as revivalism maybe a similar tone and a similar fervor, but it's directed very immediately towards political ends. So the institution for this, and you see this in Marilyn Robinson's novel about about Iowa, not about Missouri, but somewhat similar circumstances, 
Kansas is involved in that novel is Gilead, is that Oberlin College in Ohio produces innumerable abolitionist preachers who are going to largely go west as missionaries. And they will begin to organize the Northerners, particularly the Yankees, the New Englanders or New England derived folks, into either emigrant companies to settle in Kansas or as uh, people who are self-consciously politically opposed to what would otherwise have come pretty normally, both in the state of Missouri and at first in the state of Kansas, which will get its own episode. So we'll talk about that later. But they're going to be organized in a way that without the influence of those preachers, they really would not have been. And I, I think it's important to say that actual abolitionism, the the expulsion of the concept of slavery anywhere, not just the slave trade, the foreign slave trade, domestic slave trade, but the actual extinction of slavery in the United States of America is very, very, very much a minority report, even yeah. in the North, all the way Absolutely. up to and through January 1st, 1863. So you have to realize how radical these people are in almost everybody's eyes, even to other Northerners, but they're going to be formative not so much in what we'll talk about next week with the Mormons, who have a somewhat similar derivation, but formative. Yeah, yeah I don't think. We'll later. Yeah, we don't really have an example in modern culture of something that is quite as polarizing, because at least on all sides, you know, right. all around, you know, you have to almost have to draw a circle around these people, and everybody is sort of on the outside looking in at them. As far as right. anything we could come up with today, is more divided one side or the other yep. more than this, you know, uh, you don't have all sides uniting quite like you do on the abolitionists. Right. Yeah. And, and so, the, I mean, they're only one constituent part of what by the 1850s becomes the Republican party. And they're not even within the Republican party, as you can tell from the nomination of Abraham Lincoln, who was not an abolitionist until a certain period until, of time. Until politically expedient. Right. Exactly. You can tell that not even in the Republican Party do they control things. So the the outsized influence of very politically aware and politically adept abolitionists is really important for the history of Missouri, as it is also for that the part of Illinois that borders it with Elijah Lovejoy in Alton, Illinois, or in Kansas, as we'll talk about later. Yeah, I think one of the the harder things to look at when you come to, you know, the ones who want to come to Missouri and change it, and of course the Kansans or the would-be Kansans who come, if they come there for any reason other than land and to settle it, if they're there for political motivations, you know, how much of it is sincere religious convictions or political convictions and how much of it is just a raw desire for power and for property. Yeah. With, with Henry Lyman Beecher later on, even after the civil war, there is definitely a kind of preacher cult of personality that makes it easy to assess some of this just in terms of sheer desire for power. Some of it, on the other hand, in the case of, like a John Brown, who actually in his own time is not generally called John Brown. He's generally known as Osawatomie Brown for, <laughs> right. for, for reasons that we'll, <laughs> we'll make clear um, in talking about Bleeding Kansas itself. But there is very sincere conviction there. But this is kind of a perennial American question. And I'm sure in talking about the Mormons, Pastor Grills is going to be a little bit more of 
a supporter of, of <laughs> the Mormons. We'll, we'll, we'll face off a little bit more, I expect, next week. But is that this is always a question in American religion, which where where you have religious freedom, what do you do with somebody who has an insanely you know sincere conviction that you believe to be insane? <laughs> yeah, and right. what do you do with that? What do you do with that? But but we come back to the earlier discussion of you know is a propositional nation a thing that can actually exist. Right. And then when dealing with someone with these kinds of convictions, the answer is obviously no. You know, you can't. How do you enforce that? Right. Because Brown's Brown's sincere conviction is that a slave revolt is necessary for the expungement of the stain of slavery from the United States of America. Well, and this is something that I didn't get into or maybe I, I did. I touched on it, but didn't get into in detail years ago when we did the. Second Amendment, the gun rights episodes yeah, on here, yep, yep, where yep. people don't realize that how violent the slave revolts were, who the victims were, and why gun control gets established in certain territories in direct response to slave uprisings. There was a legitimate fear of horrific violence and assault, and men like John Brown encouraged that and did their best to stoke those kinds of things. Right. And, and in the in the case of Brown, believed it was from God. Right. So this is this is where it's really impossible to separate one's religion. You can distinguish them, but to separate one's religion from one's political both convictions and in his case actions becomes under circumstances of stress and conflict impossible. Yeah. So having having a weird conviction is fine if you're not going to act on it. But if you have a weird conviction and you feel you need to act on it, what does everybody else do? Well, yeah, and that's going to be kind of the rub in next week's episode when we talk about the Mormons. Who's the real aggressor? Was Missouri justified? Was was the governor justified in the extermination order or calling the militia and various right. local uh, militia leaders? You know, how how deep into those details and names do we want to get? We'll find out. Yeah, um, we'll get. I think we'll get pretty, I mean, and, you know, just as a teaser, you're not, you're going to find few more obviously Southern names than Lilburn Boggs. So yeah, it's just sitting right yeah, there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that is really the Mormon Missouri war is Yankees versus Southerners and people, <laughs> people don't realize that they don't, they don't. Yeah. So prelude to the prelude to the civil war. If you want to do <laughs> it, can we talk about the the third group that by the yeah. 1850s is kind of filling, filling up the place. So if you yeah. drive along, I-70 in Missouri, you're going to, you're going to see a little bit west of St. Louis getting towards Herman. You can stop at a, at a Missouri state historical site called Deutschheim. And it's really fascinating, very beautiful, very well taken care of as, you know, Deutsche Dinge should be. But what that is, is a reflection of a group that from about 1840. So this is a little bit after the Saxon immigration to Perry County, Missouri, we're still going to consider them part of that second wave. Yeah, right. They're definitely part of the second wave. Is going to be an enormous group by the opening of the Civil War. And what that is, is what you would you would see as the second major wave and the, the vastly larger wave of German immigration to the United States. The first wave being colonial immigration, predominantly to Pennsylvania, Maryland, New York, and Virginia, kind of in that order and then spreading down the Appalachian mountain chain 
into a Tennessee Senate territory of blessed memory, that group kind of gets cut off from a lot of other people. They meld on the frontier with the Scots-Irish. They remain their own group in the part of Pennsylvania called the Pennsylvania Dutch country, but they have a about a 50-year gap from about 1780 to 1830, where we have little to no German immigration. And part of that is that the United States is not a terribly appealing place for them to come, but an even larger part of that are the Napoleonic Wars that absolutely devastate Germany throughout German territory, German-speaking territory, for upwards of 20 years, depending on where you are, especially in the Rhineland. So German immigration is going to pick back up to the United States in the 1830s, but really after we recover from the Panic of 1837. So the Saxon immigration to Missouri comes just before a giant wave begins to pour into the urban Northeast, but especially what we now call the Midwest, but what people then called the West, as in St. Louis was the westernmost baseball town once you get professional <laughs> baseball going. Right. And, and that, that immigration in the case of a state like Missouri, as will also be the case in, say, Wisconsin, which is originally settled from New England or Iowa, which is similar, is going to overwhelm everything else. It's just going to be that large. And it's, it's chain migration, as immigration usually is. So people from similar places in Germany are going to come with each other to similar places in the United States. And if you know enough about local history in Missouri, you can probably know if, you know, we were founded by these folks, but then a bunch of Hanoverians came or our town was <laughs> started by Saxons or whatever the case may be. Right. And you can even see it in the place name sometimes. That immigration, especially in eastern Missouri, let's say the greater St. Louis area, is going to demographically overwhelm that Southern population, particularly kind of central going into Eastern Missouri. And even things that by, by right of geology or geography are the Ozarks are not gonna be thought of as the Ozarks and won't vote the way the rest right. of the Ozarks do when settled by Germans. Right. Do you think it's simply a case of lack of assimilation? Germans have, it's, it's kind of like in our churches when you go back through the histories. They they come here. They're separated from the motherland, the fatherland. They have a completely different form of church government, and they're so new to an American way of doing things that they basically try to fund churches on a gymnasium model or something like that. Yeah, the, and and they're going to stay isolated more than the first wave will, simply because of there's more of them and there are more places for them to settle. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're definitely more isolated. And that's something on, I mean, going all the way back. So when people talk about today, like the Missouri Synod doesn't have the same kind of national exposure that a much smaller denomination like the PCA does, but it also has a seminary in the city of St. Louis. That goes all the way back. <laughs> that goes all the way back. And there are several reasons for that, that I, I think the listeners, it will actually be helpful to them, even though in, in terms of border violence, partly because of their isolation, the Germans have a relatively small part, with the exception of the, of the Camp Jackson affair in St. Louis. Do you think and, that they have much of an effect on uh, Missouri's 
attitude going into the Civil War or attitude concerning Kansas? They have a big effect on what happens with the with the state of Missouri. Mm-hmm. They they don't have much effect on Kansas because of where they tend to settle. They're gonna they're gonna take over parts of what had been Little Dixie and make them more like you know Little Baden or Little Hanover. And now I realize this causes very mixed emotions for you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, well, let that, that let's <laughs> let's get into right. I'm just there's there's so much here. This is like you know, this is my whole life is related to the Missouri Synod as as a weirdo, but with a you know surreptitiously German last name. Is that that probably the first reason that they're isolated is because by the 19th century Germans think of themselves as a unified culture with a noun attending that you know, here's what we are, here's what we bring, or here's how we do things called Deutschtum, which is Germanness in English. So we don't really even have the term in English. That causes them to describe people like myself when they encounter us, even in places like Missouri. So remember, if you go back in the word fitly archive, you can find our Tennessee Synod episodes, is that the quote Tennessee Synod actually exists in Missouri before the Missouri Synod does. Right. Because people move from the American South into Missouri. And will exist on an eternity beyond the Missouri Synod. <laughs> and, so, and so when they when they encounter us, guess how they describe us with German last names, but we're we're like insufficiently German in so many other ways, is they describe us as degenerate. <laughs> because we've we've fallen such a, such a Jewish way of, of describing well, the, your kinsman, you know? Always so considerate, you know, and, <laughs> and as and as kind as possible. Because because we are Americans, right? And and that has to do with a with something that goes back all the way back to the beginning of our episode, which is there is what you would call if you were looking at this on a large enough time scale, an ethnogenesis in America that is going to make Yankees and Southerners more like each other, even when they're shooting each other. than they are like the Germans who are not really part of an American people. Certainly not then, right? We can leave it Well, I mean, it's like like the North importing the Irish during the Civil War. Right. Right. And And we can both gang up on the Irish. (laughs) That's right. My record on the Irish is clean. We know, everybody (laughs) knows where I stand. So, so that the idea of holding themselves apart is, is also because they don't see anything in coming to America really to be gained except land and the opportunity to do things the way that they would like to do them, especially concerning what we would call questions of conscience. So the, your big, your big German groups in Missouri at the time are going to be Lutherans of various kinds, what are called reformed, but are probably more like Prussian union. They'll eventually be called evangelical. And then free thinkers. That's what they call themselves. They're sometimes called 48ers because they were generally revolutionaries in the failed European revolutions of 1848. And then they come here. The 48ers or free thinkers are going to be the thought leaders in the German community. So interestingly, and Deutschheim, that site I referred to reflects that, it's not a site about Lutherans. It's not a site about Catholics, which eventually you'll get more of in Missouri coming from Germany. It's a site about really about free thinkers. And it is that because of their outsized role in 
developing the wine industry in Missouri and founding the German language yeah. newspapers and all you know, that. You know, while they will eventually assimilate, even though they don't believe it, and depending upon the ones you're talking to, you might not believe it, but they will eventually, within two generations, assimilate, at least as far as language is concerned. Yeah. Do you feel that to kind of toward the end of the episode here, getting yeah. back to the general conversation about borders, yeah, is crossing a border into a nation simply for land uh, a sufficient reason to do so? It's interesting. For whom is the question? Right. It's interesting because the Germans ask themselves the same question. So if you have any familiarity with, and we'll use it in a future episode, the old book, Zion on the Mississippi, which is about the Saxon immigration, you, you may notice that part of their doubt after the deposition of Stefan is whether their reason for being there is therefore legitimate at all. And because the idea that they came and they simply have benefited from very low agricultural prices, or I'm sorry, specifically agricultural real estate prices, it seems illegitimate to some of them. And it, and it, and it's why some of them go back when they don't seem to themselves to have a good religious reason to be there. So the idea that you're, you're going to a new country because it's a business opportunity is illegitimate even in the minds of some of them. And, and I think that if you, if you step back and think about it abstractly, the idea that whatever your ancestry or wherever it is that you live, that you have come there simply as a business proposition is going to make you, this is just kind of a stand, if you've ever read any Wendell Berry whatsoever, talking point, but it's a valid one. It, it makes you necessarily homeless. If you would move anywhere for a job, or we could say for land prices, then you are a homeless person. Mm -hmm. I mean, you might, you might own a really nice house, but you're homeless. A man without a country. Right. Yeah. And that, that displacement or continual displacement, which is also a function. It's not just the Germans that are doing this. It's, you know, everybody, everybody moving to Missouri at some point. Well, it's all the way up to today. Right. Yeah. If if you're going to move anywhere for economic reasons, then it's really going to be hard to preserve not only your own family, but but certainly on a larger scale, a people group or for a people group to sustain yeah. itself. Well, I think that's why, like, even till today, it's, you know, you go to, to Arizona, right? Or even even a place like Denver is, is sort oh, of yeah. this way. Yeah, you know, Denver no, is no, totally this way. No, nobody is from there, <laughs> you know? In the and, whole scheme, yeah. In the whole scheme of things, we have, I mean, in my congregation, the number of married couples that are that are actually both from Colorado, but then you go back a generation and usually that generation wasn't from Colorado. Right. So, yep. And it makes for a very strange phenomenon. That is why the people of the, of the modern West, the West, what we would call the West today yeah. tend to be very different. They have very different outlooks, different temperaments that I don't think are related so much to heritage as it is setting there. There's a, almost a transient nature to it. There's a love yeah. from where they're at. But everything is so new, uh, relatively speaking. And it, they don't speak of their home in the same way you or I would speak of the Appalachians, right? Right. Um, because they just don't have that. Again, like I said, nobody's from there. Right. Yeah. And even the things, I mean, when when your home is treated, I mean, part of the region, reason Appalachia is a thing is because it's poor. Yeah. You know, like that—that's a blessing in disguise on a on a, right. long, on, a on a long time scale. Right. Because we can we can talk about the mountain range itself being an obstacle, but right. that was only true for like 
till you got enough families in there to kind of yeah. breed the population. Right. Yeah. That was a long time ago. Right. Um, Nowadays. Yeah. Economics are, uh, are what they are. Right. And so if, if, but we, but we do have the trend there of, uh, you know, wealthy hipster podcasters moving in because we do have inexplicably good internet in places. <laughs> <laughs> no radio reception, but great internet. Yeah, exactly. Right. Thanks fiber. Yeah. But yeah, no, you're right. And I, and I think that when you're thinking about borders, if a place is transient, that also means that actual functional borders, uh, so not, you know, what is what is the legal border between this county and that county? We'll talk about counties a lot next week, but functional borders, where, where do I encounter completely different people? Those are going to be shifting all the time because you don't know who's coming next because the calculus is basically solely yeah. economic. Well, you know, large cities are a microcosm of this. Yep. The one, you know, this neighborhood that used to be great has now in a generation turned into ghetto. And one block away, you now have the gentrification of what was once ghetto now becoming the affluent neighborhood. And on a micro scale, that's what you see on na- at nations and, on, and in the states. Yep. So you can, you can drive through Denver or any major city or any city of any size and see this on a very small level. Yeah, and things that were for the people that are Colorado natives. I mean, I have I have a member who remembers when one of our absolutely largest streets in my suburb was a dirt road. So she's been here her whole life. Is that the place if you live in it? But other people, lots of other people, want to live in it too. Um, unlike you know Franklin County, Pennsylvania. Don't go there, please. Um, it's, <laughs> uh, there's nothing for you there. There's nothing for you there. That's right. When other people want to live there, it will become unrecognizable to the people who have always lived there. And so there, there is a certain tragedy. Yeah, I about, could describe the changes yeah. undergoing my hometown right now, but I need the podcast to be available on all major platforms. So I will refrain <laughs> from commenting. <laughs> So, Dr. Koontz, we've got a couple minutes left here on the border episode. Are there any parting thoughts um, to kind of tee up the future discussions? I think one of the things that we should learn from history is that the Bible's understanding of mankind is born out in history. Not only can you see a display of original sin, even if you don't have the term, but that the idea that things that we find distasteful or unusual, such as violence, are norms unless checked. So if peace should be normal in a functioning state, if you don't have a functioning state, then violence will be normal. And what we're going to see over several weeks here is that violence is going to function basically as a proxy for political problems no one was able to or willing to solve or thought eventually in many cases could only be solved violently. So these these weren't things that necessarily had to happen, but they were things that happened because someone was unwilling or unable to do something about them long beforehand. And that solutions, like we'll talk about with the Mormons next week, that were offered before there was widespread violence, those solutions are things that simply could not be accepted by one or more parties to some kind of agreement. And once that let's say social contract and that's a different term for lock than the way i'm using it but a social contract between two different parties who otherwise couldn't stand each other so imagine if 
North Dakota just absolutely despises Manitoba or something, right? <laughs> right. Right. Um, Very hard, hard to imagine. Yeah, but it's impossible, right? But but those those folks can get along with each other. They've got the Peace Garden, whatever. Or is that with Alberta? I'm, I'm getting a little fuzzy <laughs> right now. But when that social contract is broken, now we're dealing with a situation where resolution is really only possible through violence in the minds of, of almost everybody. And this is going to help set us up not only for understanding potential future conflict, but seeing things like, well, how does the civil war work in a place where you have all these different peoples? Because Missouri will be an unusually bitter place during the civil war in a way that, you know, honestly, South Carolina is not. Right. Well, very good. Well, you have been listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz. You know where to find us. God love you and God bless. The period of Lutheran orthodoxy produced the most profound, doxological, and God-honoring theology the world has ever known. For too long, the literary works of Lutheran orthodoxy have remained locked away as cumbersome PDFs in gigantic databases, as dusty volumes in rare book rooms, or as expensive collector's items. But the Fathers of Lutheran Orthodoxy Project is committed to putting them back into the hands, hearts, and minds of Christians everywhere at affordable prices. To find out more, visit us on Facebook and Lulu at Fathers of Lutheran Orthodoxy. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe. Become a patron. And join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. 
North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.